ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. You're listening to the seventh season of Breakdown, an exclusive podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution produced with our partners at WSB Radio. This season, Judgment Call. For more information, including photos, court records, and video, go to ajcbreakdown.com. Follow us on Twitter at AJC Courts and at Reporter JCB. Also, please join our Breakdown Facebook group to meet our journalists and ask questions about our story. Previously on Breakdown. How can I help you, ma'am? Yes, uh, we have one of the residents on Pinkies and Drugs. Why, you already called us. naked outside. We're on the way, man. He's naked? 251 shots fired. You five one, you five the subject fifty two himself, or did you fire from? Negative, I did. I hit it. He came right at me. This is a dream. I stopped crying and you know. I don't think I cried yet about it really. I'm angry about it, but I don't think I've gotten it all out, but I, I remember it. Is is a like a, a a part of me is gone. And Anthony said, good, they're here to help me. That's what Anthony told the guy. In Anthony's mind, he was, he was, the police were coming to help him. But then, yet still, he got shot and killed. I'm Bill Rankin. I'm Christian Boone. We're reporters with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, bringing you the latest season of Breakdown in partnership with WSB Radio. Welcome to Episode 2 of Season 7, Judgment Call. In Episode 1, we introduced you to Anthony Hill, an Afghanistan war veteran who came to Atlanta to launch a career in music. He was just 26 years old and mentally ill when DeKalb County Police Officer Chip Olson shot him on March 9, 2015. We didn't tell you much about Officer Olson, and what we've learned will surprise you. So, who is Chip Olson? He's a very, he's a pretty black and white person in terms of you know, it's either right or wrong, or it's, you know, it's a one or a two. It's, you know, I mean, it, it is what it is, right? There's a little gray area um, when it comes to doing things, right? Like, he's always been um, very definitive. That's Kathy Olson, Chip Olson's wife of 16 years. We sat down with her in their attorney's office six weeks before the trial. Not surprisingly, Kathy was a little nervous. This was the first time she'd spoken with the news media. Her attorney, Don Samuel, wouldn't let her talk about the specifics of the case, but she talked at length about her husband and the toll the last four and a half years has taken on their family. 
Kathy and Chip Olson first met in Atlanta in 2001. She said she was attracted by his integrity, honesty, and, in her words, his wicked sense of humor. They were married two years later. They have one son, he's nine years old, and in the fourth grade. He will do anything for our son. I would like to say he would do anything for me, but our son is his world. When his son was born, Chip Olson was in his mid-40s, and becoming a dad wasn't the only big change in his life. He had spent a couple of decades as a self-described suit-and-tie guy, working for the Marriott Corporation in the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Now, at age 47, he decided to become a cop. That's right, 47. That's an age when most cops are planning for retirement or transitioning to a less stressful career. But Chip Olson came from a military family, and he had wanted to serve as well. He had told me that he had been interested in joining the military when he was in his 20s, but his family discouraged him from doing that. Joining the police force seemed to Olson to be the next best thing. As for Kathy, she was supportive, but understandably anxious. So I don't know what we were getting into. Um, Sure you want to do this? I mean, he was not the oldest in his academy. He was the second oldest. Here's Chip Olson in his own words, testifying at a pretrial hearing in 2018. Started um, getting physically ready for it. I knew I was a bit older at the time. And I had several careers before then, but this is where I wanted to be. It wasn't easy, that's for sure. One of the activities I know they did was, uh, was they had these big gigantic tires. And they'd have to like carry these tires around with them all day long. So how do you prepare for that, mm. right? How do you prepare for like doing push-ups in the mud, in the rain? I mean, he was in the academy like during the wintertime. So, you know, like January, February, March here can be pretty miserable. Rain, wow. cold rain, uh, mud and stuff. So, but... Did he ever have second thoughts? Going to the train? No, or did I get myself never. Olson was sworn in to the DeKalb County Police Department in 2008. Bill, what should we know about DeKalb County? DeKalb County includes the eastern part of Atlanta, and it's one of the most populous counties in Georgia. Outsiders always try to call it DeKalb, but we pronounce it DeKalb. More than half of the residents are African-American, but DeKalb is also home to Stone Mountain, best known as the largest Confederate memorial in the world. Blasted, chiseled, and chipped out of the mountainside are Jefferson Davis, Robert E. Lee, and Stonewall Jackson, all on horseback. This thing is big. General Lee is 90 feet tall. When the carving was being created, a worker could step inside a horse's mouth to get out of a sudden rainstorm. Seriously. The Ku Klux Klan was reborn atop Stone Mountain in 1915. So yeah, Iraqi history. And that's just the Confederate part of DeKalb. Check out this rap sheet. No, not a rap sheet for a career criminal, a rap sheet for the county sheriff. This is the county where, in the year 2000, the incumbent sheriff lost his bid for re-election. So he had his opponent assassinated on the man's front lawn. Former Sheriff Sidney Dorsey is now serving a life sentence in prison for ordering the hit. Another former sheriff, Pat Jarvis, who once pitched for the Atlanta Braves, spent time behind bars for taking bribes. In 2017, DeKalb Sheriff Jeffrey Mann was arrested after exposing himself in Atlanta's Piedmont Park and then running from police. Oh, by the way, he's still sheriff. And that's just a sampling. 
The CAB is one of the biggest police forces in the state, with almost 900 cops. Olson started on patrol duty, like all rookies. His inexperience and temperament would lead to problems early on. He received five civilian complaints, four of which alleged rudeness and or profanity. Another was for parking in a fire lane while shopping at a grocery store. In 2009, cab driver Mercedes Lewis alleged that Olson followed her and threatened to give her a traffic ticket over his loudspeaker. She described it as, quote, the craziest, freakiest thing that ever happened to me as a cab driver. In her complaint, Lewis said she thought it wouldn't be long before Olson shot someone. In 2011, a supervisor told a training commander that Olson needed to work on his people skills. That recommendation followed a complaint from a retired school teacher. Olson had pulled over the woman's husband for running a red light. Quote, As soon as my husband rolled down the window, Olson started shouting, Do you think you're above the law? She said Olson needed an anger management course. This was all in his police department personnel file. So Olson was taken off the streets and sent to a familiar spot. Back behind a desk. He was an aide to the major who oversaw the Dunwoody Precinct north of Atlanta. In Olson's own words, he was responsible for, quote, correspondence and paperwork, unquote. He also managed the files for the Internal Affairs Division. Take a look at his arrest record. In 2009, when he was a full-time patrol officer, he made 115 arrests. That number dropped noticeably year after year. In 2013, he made only 12 arrests. For some cops, that's a week's worth of collars. So you're saying that Olson wasn't cut out for the streets? It certainly looks that way. But necessity would dictate a return to patrol duty. They wanted to increase the level of staffing per shift that they moved lieutenants into the, those administrator positions. Um, and then the major asked me if I would go back to the road within the precinct as a patrol officer. So in October 2013, it was back to the grind, responding to 911 calls that ranged from false alarms to serious domestic disputes. Here's Olson describing his daily routine. There was never a typical day in DeKalb County, never. You would run the gamut from everything, um, from fender benders to major accidents on the interstates where I'd have to shut down, 285. I didn't like to do it. We shut the interstate down, um, Spaghetti Junction, all through there. Hey, Atlanta traffic is bad enough. Shutting down Spaghetti Junction? That's vehicular Armageddon. And alarm calls constantly, obviously. False alarms, most of them false, some of them not. Break-ins, assaults, domestic assaults, spats, neighbor arguments, um, suspicious persons all the time. You know, citizens calling in wants to check out somebody wandering in the neighborhood or a suspicious vehicle. Those were a constant. By the time Olson arrived at the parking lot at the heights of Shambly Apartments, he'd been on the DeKalb Force seven years, but he'd faced few high-stakes confrontations or life-or-death decisions that many Metro police officers encounter. In fact, he'd only pulled out his taser once, chasing a guy who'd been passing bad checks. He'd never struck anyone with his baton. He'd never used pepper spray, and he never fired his handgun except at the range. This is Breakdown. Ocean breeze. Tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. That brings us to March 9th, 2015. Olson started his day at 6 a.m., 
He got the call regarding Anthony Hill around lunchtime. Olson wasn't the only officer sent to the scene. His backup, Lynn Anderson, hit the accelerator after hearing about a suspicious person who was nude. Here's Anderson. Um, because <clears throat> the guy could possibly be in, um, violent. It could possibly turn to be violence, or you just don't know. I've had situations where people, uh, people that's demented, they're very strong. So things can get out of hand with them. So that's what made me speed it up. He didn't get there soon enough. Uh, when I got to the scene, um, I saw Officer Olsen standing near um, Anthony Hill with bloody gloves on. And um, Anthony Hill was laying face up. Uh, blood was all over his body. You've heard how Chip Olsen described his encounter with Anthony Hill. Now let's hear from the other eyewitnesses at the scene. Pedro Castillo was one of the two apartment maintenance workers who were standing next to Hill before he began running at Olson's squad car. He speaks Spanish. So here's what he said he saw through an interpreter. Uh, the police was just getting off the car, the police car, and he got surprised. He was surprised because when he saw Anthony running towards him. Now here's where detail is really important. Olson, you'll recall, says Hill was sprinting toward him and the officer felt threatened. And remember the witness interviewed by investigator Eric Eccles, hired by Hill's family? That witness, Miguel Medina, was a resident at the Heights of Chambly Apartments. He's a heating and air technician. He parked his pickup truck behind Olson's police cruiser. Since the shooting, Medina has given differing versions about how Hill approached Olson's squad car. He has said he was running. He has said he was jogging. He has said he was trotting. He's also said when Hill approached Olson, he had a smile on his face. Here's how Medina describes it under oath. Again, this is through an interpreter. He was coming like, you know, a person uh, with his hands up. Like, you know, a person that's um, dizzy or, or drunk from beer. <laughs> because it's happened to me sometimes. Yeah, when you're a, a bit drunk, you don't run this way, you run that way. Castillo, the maintenance worker, also said Hill started off running, but then slowed before he got to the patrol car. Bill, why is this so important? This case boils down to a matter of seconds and one overriding question. Was Olson justified in feeling threatened? If Hill was sprinting toward him, maybe so. But a naked, unarmed man jogging in his direction? That's far more questionable. The witnesses agree on one very important point. Officer Olson warned Hill to stop. Here's Castillo again through an interpreter. He said, stop, stop. They also agree on several key details. That Olson, after exiting his patrol car, was backing up. Hill never stopped moving toward the officer. Hill was within 10 feet when Olson fired. So what do you think? Put yourself in Olson's shoes. Would your answer be any different if Hill were jogging instead of sprinting or had a smile on his face? Castillo was asked to put himself in Olson's place. Would he have felt threatened? Again, this is through an interpreter. Yes, absolutely. I, if I was in the police place, I would have thought that he was coming towards me and do something to me. And that's the central question in this case. Was Hill running at Olson with ill intent or to him seeking help? Only one person in the world knew the answer to that, and he's dead. So the jury will be left with trying to divine Anthony Hill's intentions. Proportionality matters too. 
Assume everything Olsen said is true, that Hill was sprinting at him, that he feared an attack. Did that mean he had to respond with deadly force? Couldn't Olsen have protected himself with his baton, pepper spray, or taser? Also, there's a considerable size difference between the two men. Olsen is 6 feet 2 and weighed 205 pounds. Hill was 5'9 and weighed about 165. So a lot of times we get caught up in this misnomer um, that somebody was involved in an encounter with the police and that person uh, was shot, but it turned out that they were unarmed, and that becomes the headline. That's Lance LaRusso, a former cop, now an attorney who represents police officers facing excessive force accusations. He talks about what happened to one police officer who was confronted by an unarmed man. He was attacked on a sidewalk by a shoplifter, and his head was beaten into the ground. He was almost unconscious, and the suspect was holding him down and punching his head. Well, he's punching the front of his head, and the back of his head is hitting the concrete. He suffered a permanent brain injury. So many times um, the notion that an unarmed person is not a danger and cannot create a deadly threat has caused a lot of uh, animus towards law enforcement and, quite frankly, I think has caused a lot of law enforcement officers to be placed in danger. But Robert James, the DeKalb County District Attorney at the time, who would decide whether to indict Olson, didn't see it that way. It is a terrible, terrible, terrible tragedy that did not have to happen. Um, It just absolutely did not have to happen. And you have, I I would characterize it as as not just a gross overreaction, perhaps the worst overreaction that I've ever seen on on the part of law enforcement. So um, it was just like, what are you thinking? James already had quite a few high-profile cases as DA. He prosecuted DeKalb's CEO and the county school superintendent. He'd obtained convictions in the highly publicized Dunwoody daycare killing. Visiting the scene and talking with witnesses cinched it for James. Olson should be indicted. What they told me uh, was was more than convincing. It was, you know, it was riveting. It was, it was one of those moments, wow, like this happened. In this case, I can tell you that when I spoke with the witnesses, I was convinced that this had to be done, that it wasn't just the right thing. It was the only thing to do. But there's a reason these prosecutions are so rare. We talked to Brad Schrade, my colleague at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He was part of a team that reported the award-winning series Over the Line, which looked at police shootings in Georgia and how prosecutors deal with them, or more often, don't. The primary reason being that, generally speaking, the officer had good reasons to fire at the suspect. Pretty much, if you're an officer and you fear for your life, and there's general facts for justifying it, it's generally legal. I mean, there's a wide latitude. We as a society legally have given a wide latitude to officers to use deadly force in the course of their duties. And again, the vast majority of these, or the significant majority, they use it responsibly and and well. And we've, as the legal system, has determined that we're not going to sit here and try to second-guess an officer's decision in the heat of the moment where their life may be on the line. But these decisions are being made at a time when there's deep mistrust in minority communities that the justice system will be fair and colorblind when it comes to policing the police. 
How do you trust the system to know that for those rare cases where an officer has maybe gone over the line and shouldn't have used deadly force when we don't have any real way to assess that based on the data because everything is justified legally almost. So it's a real dilemma as police agencies try and and law enforcement tries to gain credibility with the public and restore that credibility that that a system is pretty much set up to where officers almost have wide legal latitude to pull the trigger. The AJC's reporting found there was a reason it was almost impossible to indict officers in Georgia, and it had to do with the grand jury system. Back in 2015 when we were looking at this, the Georgia system actually was probably one of the most tilted in the country. Georgia had a unique law that the officer could sit in the entire grand jury process when they're facing a potential indictment, They could sit there, listen to all the evidence, listen to all the testimony possibly against them that the prosecutors are bringing, and then at the end of it, under Georgia law, which was unique, they could give a statement for as long as they wanted. They could cry. They could talk about their dedication as officers. They could talk about whatever they wanted under the sun for as long as they wanted, and oh, by the way, the prosecutor could not cross-examine them under the law, and the grand jurors couldn't ask any questions. That was a sort of almost like a bubble of security for officers inside a grand jury room. Of course, in a normal case, the defendant is nowhere near the grand jury room. Most defendants have no idea when a grand jury is even considering charges against them. And there's another reason why it's hard to indict a cop. We like police officers. They protect us. Robert James acknowledged that dynamic. It's also true, he said, that prosecutors and the police work closely together and develop relationships. They become friends. They hang out. So when a questionable shooting occurs, that makes a prosecutor's decision to bring charges all the more complicated. But James said none of that should stand in the way of holding police accountable in cases where they step over the line. I don't think anybody in the state is naive enough to think that this was the first case in five years because because this was the only shooting that was unjustified in five years. I don't believe that. And I'd be a fool to say that, and, and I don't think anybody that reads your paper believes that. This is Breakdown. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. After Ferguson, police shootings suddenly generated much more scrutiny. A large segment of the public had begun to redefine what it was willing to accept. While James was conducting his investigation, the Georgia legislature changed the rules of the grand jury. Officers are no longer able to be present for the entire grand jury proceeding, listening to the evidence against them. They can still make a statement at the end, but it can be challenged or questioned. Here's Robert James again. Once the law changed, a lot of that stopped because if you put your client up as a criminal defense lawyer, you put an officer up there on the stand to make a statement, not only is he going to be subject to cross-examination, 
not only is there going to be a transcript, so it becomes more of a deposition, you've got transcript that you can use against this police officer at trial, but most importantly, you can put up rebuttal evidence. So he doesn't have the opportunity to be the last word. So you can put up three investigators after he or she and refute all of it. Early on, James was determined to bring an indictment against Olson, but he was unsure about a conviction. Olson's account had been corroborated by most of the witnesses at the scene. But during what he thought would be a routine interview, James learned something that changed the case dramatically. It came from Officer Lynn Anderson, who you heard a bit earlier describing the scene at the heights of Chambly Apartments. I went to that interview just trying to get sort of a bird's eye view of what happened in the moments afterwards, and then that comes out, and I'm just like, whoa. Um, so no, it was very, it was very um, important, very persuasive, and even more so when we were able to corroborate it. You know, going back and pulling radio traffic and things of that nature once we were able to, and then going back and looking at the video of the aftermath of the incident, watching body language and having that officer explain it to us. At that point, we knew at this point, this case was going to be prosecuted, this case was going to be indicted. And I felt pretty good about our, about our chances. That's because of what happened after Officer Lynn Anderson arrived at the scene. Olson made it sound like Hill physically assaulted him. But that's not what witnesses said. Here's Anderson. Um, I asked Officer Olson uh, what happened. And he stated um, when he exited out the vehicle, uh, Anthony Hill came running toward him and started pounding on him. Officer Olson um, demonstrated close to me that um, using hand motion, like he was like pounding on him. I don't know him, but I kind of stood back because I didn't want the blood on me. Anderson was also struck by what Olson didn't say. Because Anthony Hill was naked, and I was expecting to hear him say that, you know, there was some type of weapon that was going to be used, whether it's a stick or something that he came toward him with. Anderson then started interviewing the witnesses at the scene, including the two groundskeepers who saw it all unfold. He asked one, Denny Hechevarria, what happened? I asked him, did Anthony Hill ever touch um, Officer Olson? He stated no. And I ended up talking to a second witness, uh, Pedro Castillo. Uh, I asked him, did he, uh, did, Officer, did Anthony Hill ever touch him? He stated no. Private investigator Eric Eccles, remember he was hired by the lawyer representing Hill's family, had secured a video taken right after the shots were fired. He gave that video to the DeKalb DA's office. It appears to show Olson doing what Anderson said. Here's Eccles. See, the video that I secure, which I still have, the video shows the officer, Officer Olson, walking to the first officer on scene and doing, holding his hands and doing like this and doing a, a reach and grabbing motion, indicating to me that that was what happened. That's why he shot. He shot. The witnesses you know, specifically said that didn't happen. Eccles agrees this was a game changer. The blue wall of silence had been pierced, meaning one cop broke ranks providing evidence unfavorable to a fellow officer. He went against that cold blue. Officers don't want to talk about it, but it exists. It definitely exists. And for him to step out and tell the truth was commendable. Robert James was now all in, and he was going for murder. When asked whether that was a difficult decision, the former DA didn't hesitate. Not a tough decision, not in this case it wasn't. There are cases that it could be a tough decision. Based on the facts and the circumstances of this case, it wasn't a tough decision at all. 
The only real question was whether or not it was legally sound theory. And as we always did, we met together as a as a unit, the public integrity unit at that time, and we talked, we read case law, we debated, and at the, at the conclusion, we were all on the same page at the conclusion of our conversations. And trust me, we were not always all on the same page, but we were on that. A criminal grand jury was finally convened on January 21st, 2016, a little more than 10 months after the shooting. James took eight hours to present his case. Pretty extraordinary for a grand jury proceeding. He called a use of force expert, witnesses who were on the scene, and DeKalb County police officers. James obtained his indictment. For the Olsons, it was devastating news. Well, in the the early stages, um, when the indictment was handed down, it took all I had to not lose it. My sister-in-law and brother-in-law were here, thank God, um, to help us through all that. And... I would not wish this on anybody. I would not want wish either side. Um, And people say, well, life's not fair. And okay, well, maybe that's true. Life isn't always fair. But it doesn't necessarily have to be quite so hard. (laughs) You know. I was with Anthony Hill's family when they received the news about the indictment. It was a chilly, rainy winter evening. About 100 protesters had been waiting all day for the grand jury's decision. Afterwards, I sat with the family at the Waffle House across the street from the courthouse. As the celebration unfolded around them, Anthony's mother and girlfriend expressed relief that Olson would soon face a jury of his peers. But the initial excitement eventually wore off. Late last year, I sat down with the family again. Here's Anthony's uncle, Pierre Baylor. Yeah, my thing is, I don't even see it as winning or losing because yeah. my family, we already lost. Olson is charged with six counts, two counts of felony murder. One felony murder count stems from Olson's assault on Hill with a deadly weapon, his handgun. The other felony murder count is for killing Hill while violating his oath of office, specifically the department's use of force policy. He's also charged with one count of aggravated assault and the one count of violating his oath of office that underlies the felony murder charge. And he's charged with making a false statement for allegedly telling Officer Anderson that Hill was pounding on his chest before he shot him. And he's charged once more with violating his oath of office for making that false statement. We already told you Kathy Olson can't talk about the case. But in our interview, she described how her husband values integrity above all else, passing those attributes on to his son. He holds that so close to his heart that it's very difficult for him when that's challenged. And that's why we try to have our son with with that same level of integrity. We told him, he says, you know, you may have done something wrong, but if you lie about it, it's gonna be even worse for you. So don't lie about it. James recently recalled the grand jury's vote. While he got what he wanted, it reinforced the tough road that lay ahead. It was not unanimous, no. I do know that for sure. Yeah, because I, rem- I, I, I remember the feeling, and I'm pointing to my chest, I remember the feeling that I had in my chest when I realized that there were people, in spite of this, all of this evidence that we had presented. Because you have to remember, at a grand jury, the defense lawyer does not have the opportunity to cross-examine our witnesses. So we're putting a lot of witnesses, uncontested, strong evidence. So you expect that everybody's going to get it, no matter what your political bent is, conservative or liberal or somewhere in the middle. 
James lost his re-election bid in 2016, and he's now a private attorney in Atlanta. As DA, he became a lightning rod for a number of reasons, such as prosecuting the county's CEO. Looking back, he wonders if his decision to indict Olson played a role in his defeat. I was having one phone conversation uh, with an attorney while I was fundraising that just flat out told me I did it to get reelected and he had lost all respect for me and not to call him again. Soon before the indictment, Olson lawyered up, his legal fees being paid by the Police Benevolent Association. He retained Don Samuel, who has in the past served as Breakdown's resident legal expert, and his partner, Amanda Clark Palmer. Remember, they represented Tex McIver, whose murder trial we covered in Breakdown Season 5. Samuel believes Olson was overcharged, and he doesn't mince words about it. You know, I, I, I hate to be overly melodramatic here, but it is outrageous. And I mean that, and I'm not overstating what I think, and I'm not using lawyer spin. It is outrageous that you would say that Chip Olson should be convicted of murder and face a life imprisonment based on a, a judgment being made in the course of these four seconds that he had to figure out how am I going to deal with this life-threatening situation. It is unconscionable that the prosecution would think that the appropriate response from the community should be you should spend the rest of your life in prison. It's unconscionable. Samuel said everything unfolded so fast his client didn't have time to consider much of anything. It was all reaction. You know, I think the misconception is, is that Chip had time to reflect, to think about what he should do, uh, as if he had time to, you know, go back through his manuals or his training materials. He had off about three or four or five seconds to react to a situation that to any of us, to any of us, would have been terrifying. Now, you know, Chip didn't know who Mr. Hill was at the time. He didn't have the ability to find out. Nobody in the dispatcher's office, you know, in the police department, told Chip who he was, who Mr. Hill was. Olson didn't have all the information we know now, Samuel said, and he wishes he had. He, he's devastated by what happened. He's devastated, first and foremost, for, for Mr. Hill's family. You know, he wished he could replay he wished that he could, um, you know, get in a time machine and go back. He wished that the dispatcher had told him, we're dealing with a person who's got problems with his medication from the VA hospital. He's wishing that he knew that it was a resident at the apartment complex and not some trespasser. Um, he wished he'd do all those things. He wished he'd had the time to figure those things out. He wished that when he was in his car, he could have called and said, where's my backup? He wished that he could have called the dispatcher back and said, you know, who exactly am I dealing with here? Who is this person? But he didn't have time to do any of those things. Four seconds. Four seconds. Next on Breakdown, Olson takes a rare and risky gamble. He never touched you, did he? No. He never laid a hand on you, did he? No. He never spit on you, did he? No. He never... Tried to spin around with some superhuman powers and cause a tornado to knock you back, did he? No. I'm Bill Rankin. I'm Christian Boone. Thanks for joining us again on Breakdown. You've been listening to Breakdown, reported and narrated by Bill Rankin and Christian Boone. 
Produced by Shannon McCaffrey. Edited by Richard Hallex. Sound designed by Shane Backler at WSB Radio. Original music composed and recorded by Bo Emerson and Anthony Hill. Special thanks to Kevin Riley, Monica Richardson, Sean McIntosh, Brad Schrade, Pete Corson, Pete Spriggs, Chris Camp, Veronica Waters, and all the great people at the AJC. Please rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite download app. We also invite you to listen to the previous six seasons of Breakdown. And of course, thanks so very much for listening. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop.